on the topic of generosity, and we have camped out here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Um, at Parkview Church here at Parkview East and across you know, all three campuses, we do what's called expository preaching. Um, expository preaching, essentially my goal every Sunday when I stand before you and I open this book is that the, the, the main point of my message would be the main point of the text. And so every week, that's our goal. That's my goal. And so as we look at the topic of generosity, we, we think of how, what does God have to say about being a generous people, which we believe he has called us to be. And my primary approach to show you and teach you about the generosity of the Lord and the generosity he has called us to is not to, to survey the scripture and take a bunch of verses, but rather to hone in on a specific area where we learn, where, where God speaks specifically about this. And so the main point, my goal this morning is that the main point of my message would be the main point of this text, okay? So generosity is our topic. This morning, the, 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 the sermon title is The Good News of Giving. The good news of giving. I will prepare your heart right now. There are no slides. All right, I think I spoiled you last week, or maybe it was the week before. This week, you're on your own, okay? So if you want to take notes, you can do that in that small space provided in the bulletin. But just God bless you in your pursuit of that, all right? The good news of giving. Let's pray real quick before we, we dive into this text. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We acknowledge right now that this is an opportunity for us as your people, as a people, to gather around your word. Lord, I pray that you would help us to hold it highly, not just in this place, but also in our lives. Father, I pray that you would make your people um, not just excited about what you have to say, um, Lord, but we would be also excited to do what you have to say. Lord, we pray that you would use these words right now and that you would use them to encourage your people. You would, teach, you would use these words to, to teach them truth, um, perhaps to convict where conviction is needed, Lord, and to challenge where challenge is needed, Lord. And I pray that you would take these words, which we believe to be eternal and true, Lord, and that you would write them on our hearts. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. I want to start off this morning by telling you a story about a, a man who has had a profound impact on the way I have done ministry and tried to live, um, really try to understand what the Christian life is. This man has, had unique, has a unique reputation throughout history. His, his reputation is that of a robber. This man was a thief. His name is George Mueller. George Mueller, throughout his life and upon his death, was regularly accused of robbing the cruel streets of Bristol, England, of the homeless and helpless orphan children that called those streets their home. This man, George Mueller, was born in Germany in 1805. He died in 1898 in Bristol, England, where he spent most of his life and carried out the bulk of his ministry. In Bristol, he was in charge of a church for some 66 years. He pastored a church and really gave his life to five different ambitions. Um, one, along with the pastoring of his church, one of those ambitions was the distribution of Bibles, the free distribution of Bibles. He also gave his life to not just the free distribution of Bibles, but also of good books and of gospel tracts. He distributed those freely. This man cared a lot about education, so another initiative he gave his life to was the establishment of schools. He cared deeply about the education of adults and of children in the world. He also gave his life to missionary support. George Mueller was a contemporary and a big influencer of Hudson Taylor, who helped establish the Inland 
China Mission, I believe is what it was called. So he was a, a big supporter of Hudson Taylor. In fact, much of what Hudson Taylor's philosophy, much of his philosophy in ministry came from George Mueller. But by and large, the biggest thing that George Mueller, the thing that really left a legacy on the world, and really when people think of this man's name, instantly goes to his work with children, his work with orphans. He gave his life to the caring, the educating, the feeding, the, the boarding of countless orphan children throughout his life. By the time he died, he would have left a, a legacy, a, a, an orphanage that had some five major buildings. If you see pictures of these buildings, they're massive. And at one time, he could house up to 2,000 orphan children. Throughout his life, he cared for tens of thousands of orphans. When asked why would, he, why would he give his life to this type of work, George Mueller said, well, first and foremost, that God would be glorified as he provided. He believed that as the Lord provided for him to carry out this orphan ministry, that those who did not know God, who never heard of God, would see how God miraculously provided for this man and his team to provide for these orphans. He believed that God would get the glory. He also believed that God would be glorified for those who didn't know him, but also for, for fellow saints, that their strength would be encouraged. Right? He, he committed this work primarily for the glory of God. He also obviously cared for the spiritual welfare of these children and the physical, temporal needs that they had. Throughout his career, George Mueller raised some $2.5 million. Today, that would be the equivalent of about $180 million. And what's most miraculous about the money that this man raised for the work that God called him to do was the way he raised it. George Mueller never once asked for money. He believed that if he was really going to carry out God's work, that God would provide for God's work. So he never asked anybody for it. He also never took out any loans never borrowed any money. He just prayed, and miraculously enough, God provided. He also, I think, strategically produced reports that showed, you know, how much money they needed and things like that. So people were aware of what was going on, but he was very clear he never wanted to ask for money. And God used this man in miraculous miraculous ways. Following his death, the obituary that was published in the Daily Telegraph had claimed that Mueller had robbed the cruel streets of thousands of victims, the prisons of thousands of felons, and the workhouses of thousands of children. This man was a robber of the cruel streets of Bristol, England, and he left quite a legacy. At the very center of George Mueller's life and ministry, at the very secret, if you were to learn and discover what was it that, that shaped him and that, what convictions did he have that would cause him to live such a life and to give in such a way of all that he had, you would see at the very center, George Mueller had a conviction to take God at his word. Doesn't seem that extraordinary, right? But I guarantee you, I assure you that it is. He took God at his word. It was his commitment to take God at his word that not just directed the type of ministry, but also the way by which God would provide and he would trust that this ministry would continue. George Mueller, at the very heart of who he was, he was one who delighted in who God was, and he took him for his word. 
told you that we're talking about generosity, and in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, this topic of generosity is, is exactly what Paul is, is, is addressing with the church at Corinth. I told you last week that the big idea over these two passages, chapter 8 and chapter 9, is simply this. Because of God's grace, we give. You see, generosity is the point. He's what he's trying to motivate them. And so Paul continually reminds the church at Corinth that God is a God of grace. This morning, if there is a unique exhortation, a unique challenge I want to extend to us as a church, and I believe this text really does, is if we want to maybe make an impact in our community in a way that George Mueller did in his, it's going to require, it's going to demand that we take God at his word. That we take God at his word. This morning, as we consider... The good news of giving. I want to show you three reasons why I believe the text shows that giving, most of us, I'll just be honest, most of us may not think giving is good news, right? In fact, most of us probably think that as they walk into church this morning and the topic's going to be on giving and generosity, there's probably some of us here today who probably don't want to hear that message. But I want to show you in the text really just one verse, verse 9, sorry, verse 8 of chapter 9, why giving actually is really good news. The first reason is simply this. You see it right there at the beginning of verse 8. And God is able. First reason why giving is good news for us this morning is because God is able. Again, let's put this passage in context. What Paul is doing with his church at Corinth, a church that has a number of different problems that Paul has addressed throughout his first and second letter to the church, what Paul is trying to do is he's trying to gather money for a relief offering, an offering that he's hoping to use to bless the church in Jerusalem, a church that is struggling, a church that is poor. Unsurprisingly, the Corinthians, however, they're reluctant to give for their fellow believers, those who are struggling in Jerusalem. They had made promises that they had not been willing to honor. So here in 8 and 9, Paul is persuading them to be a generous people. He's appealing to them. Please, these folks need help. Would you give? Saw last week that Paul points them at a couple of examples. The first is the generous church Macedonia. We saw this in the beginning of chapter 8. The Macedonians were really held up as quite remarkable people. What made them so remarkable is that they are a people who had received the grace of God. We learn as we look at the Macedonians that Paul says, as the grace of God came down on this church, it did not come down alone. Grace was poured out on this church and so was affliction. Wouldn't see those things normally as being together, but they were for the Macedonians. And I guarantee you, if you want to live a life of faithfulness to Jesus, you will face and walk through affliction as well. Okay? Grace came down to this church, and so did persecution and affliction. It also came with poverty. The Macedonians were also a poor church. Again, we see this earlier in chapter 8. But grace was poured out, and in their affliction and in their poverty, guess what it produced? This doesn't compute with most of our Western minds. But what it produced was joy, an abundant joy. So God's grace is poured down on these people in the midst of affliction, in the midst of poverty. Joy bubbles up in their spirit and it overflows in, guess what? Generosity. They have given and they want to give. Basically, Paul gets to the point where he almost has to stop them from being willing to give because he's unsure if it will be healthy for them. 
but they are just giving and giving and giving to this church. So he holds them up as an example, one to be followed. But he also points them to really even a greater example, and that's of Jesus Christ himself. Really, he points them to the gospel. And when you consider all that you have been given in Christ by grace, the only natural response for those who have received grace is to then extend grace. He points them to Jesus. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Our generosity, Paul contends, is an act of his grace. It is the working out of God's grace in the human heart. And it is the appropriate response of those who have received abundantly by the grace of God to share in the immeasurable riches of Christ to then turn around and extend generosity to those around them. In the first part of chapter 9, verses 1 through 11, Paul motivates the Corinthians to give by reminding them that their giving actually comes with a blessing for them. He echoes the words of our Savior in Luke chapter 6, verse 38. Give, Jesus says, and it will be given to you. Paul establishes a couple of principles before we get into verse 8. He establishes the principle of increase. We reap, he says, by the measure we sow. He also says... That gives us the principle of intent, that it actually, God cares about your motives. He wants you to be a cheerful giver, not one who gives hesitantly or reluctantly. And then we get to this beautiful verse, verse 8. Let me just read it for us one more time. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. These three words, this, this sentence really is the sentence of our faith. This sentence is like our story, and it begins with three of the sweetest words that your ears probably will ever hear. God is able. God is able. As, as we consider the ability or maybe the power of God, I don't know about you, but my mind oftentimes goes to nature. It goes to creation. When I think about how powerful and how majestic and how mighty our God is, I often think about his creation, right? Maybe standing on a beach looking out of a vast body of water and just seeing for miles so you can't see anything else where the sky and the water bleeds together. Or maybe standing at the foot of a mountain staring up into the sky and just seeing this glorious spectacle of God's creation. Or maybe it's just simply driving, just even my way to church this morning, driving and seeing the sunrise and seeing the, the colors of the sky. When we see God, think of God's power, my mind immediately goes to his power throughout creation and how he's displayed himself, his character, his beauty in the world that he's created. But when Paul reminded the church at Corinth about the power or the ability of God he wasn't primarily thinking of God's ability or power in creation. He was primarily thinking of God's power through his provision and salvation. So as we think about our, God's power and how it personally relates to each and every one of us, it's helpful to think of it in kind of two different categories. God is able. Historically, we can think of the grace that God has poured out in us. Primarily, I would, I would say we can think that God is able to do a work in us. If you are here this morning and you receive the forgiveness of your sins and the redemption of your souls, you know what this grace tastes like. You've seen God's power on display in your life, through your story. 
Paul says earlier in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 that, that he has created us. That if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, right? The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. We think of grace in a historical sense. What God has done for us, the power he's displayed in each one of you. By reconciling you to the creator of the universe. By providing a way that you can, you can, you can bridge him even despite this massive chasm of sin that separates us. God has historically showed that he is a gracious God and his provision for you in salvation. Ephesians 3.20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. If you are a born-again follower of Jesus Christ, the power of God Almighty is at work in you. God is able to do a work in your life. But there's another way to think about his grace. And it's not a historical understanding of his grace. Rather, it's a future understanding of his grace. It's not an understanding about just what God has done in you, but it's an acknowledgement that there is a work that God's going to do through you. When Jesus prepares his disciples for his departure, he, he promises them the Holy Spirit is coming. He tells them in John 14, 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. This is a promise of future grace, of future provision, that God will come to his people and work through his people. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Folks, God is able to do a work in us. And like, even if we look at George Mueller's life and example, his story, he also shows that he wants to do a work through us. We are his workmanship, after all. We were created in Christ Jesus for these good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. He wants to work. He is able to work in you. But the good news of giving this morning is God is not just able to work in you. He's also able to work through you. Folks, if you want to be freed up from the trap of consuming and gathering and bringing into yourself all that you can and live the type of life that overflows with purpose and with meaning and with generosity, the first step is to take God at his word. To actually believe what God says he will do. And as we do this, God is faithful and God is able to pour out future grace upon grace upon grace. So that we are able, as we give our lives and our resources, God doesn't neglect our needs. He, he provides for us when we give our lives to him. The good news of giving this morning is that God is able. Secondly, we also, the, the good news is also not just that God is able, but that his grace is abundant. His grace is abundant. Paul moves on to give us the channel by which this power is supplied, namely his grace. He says, God is able to make all grace abound to you. In his grace, God makes all of who he is available to us. And all that we need. All of who he is. If you see in the passage, five times Paul uses this word, all. All grace, all sufficiency, all things, all times, every work, all. It's the same word in Greek. All of who he is. To all of what we 
need. There's a story of a man named Walter Ian Thomas. He was a contemporary of Billy Graham, an evangelist, an educator in the Bible. And he set up these different Bible schools. And one day, um, Walter Ian Thomas was giving a tour of one of the schools. And there was a group of folks who were walking throughout the halls, just marveling at what God was doing through this ministry. And a man stopped kind of dead in his tracks and turned around and said to Walter Ian Thomas, he said, Sir, what is the purpose of your life? Walter Ian Thomas responded, the purpose of my life is to make the invisible Christ visible. The purpose of my life is to make the invisible Christ visible. This possibility, taking the invisible Christ and making him visible to the world, is the result of God's grace being abundantly poured out to his church, his people, you and me. The life of Jesus Christ in us, supplied to us, living through us, ministering to our every need. What an amazing picture that is. All of who he is poured out into you and all of what you need. Paul says it like this in Colossians 1.27. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Folks, what Christ has done for us, what he is doing in us, it is mysterious. And it is the result of his grace, his abundant grace. He reveals himself to us by, by pouring himself out to you and to me. Jesus Christ chose, he chooses to clothe his life in your body and to live it again in the 20th century as he lived it in the first we, our job is to make the invisible Christ visible to the world around us. As we consider the work that God's called us to, it's such an amazing promise, such an amazing truth that he provides all that we need. It says, all sufficiency. It says another way later in 12.9, my grace is sufficient for you. It is enough for my power is made perfect in weakness. Jesus Christ is at work in each and every one of us. And he is able to meet the demands of our life, whatever those demands are. As I consider, I mean, again, George Mueller's story is a wonderful example because he took what some would say are radical steps. I would say, and the Bible would say, those are natural steps of somebody who follows Jesus, who's experienced his grace and his mercy. Right? Each and every one of us, nobody knows your heart, and your soul, and your need like you. So the best expert on the grace of God is first and primarily those who have received the grace of God. And the natural step, the natural next step in the life of a follower of Jesus is to believe what he says. Yet if we were to just to survey sort of contemporary Christianity, we would see that actually on just surface level, it doesn't seem so natural. It seems like a life like George Mueller is radical. It's different than what the rest of the Christian experience is. We'll continue this morning. No, it's naturally what happens when you take God at his word. Our reluctance to give, for example, since that's the topic this morning, quite honestly is rooted in disbelief. If you're here this morning and giving is a hard thing for you to do, whether it's giving of money or giving of your time or your energy or your ambition, I would contend to you that your primary problem is not a giving problem, it's a belief 
problem. It's a belief problem. Believing that God will do what he says he will do. Believing, for example, for example, Matthew. See, I just took example of Matthew and plugged it together and came up with example, whatever. <laughs> Matthew 6.33, for example. There it is. When Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Do we believe that? Do we believe that if we primarily seek his kingdom, the things that are of him, that he will supply for our every need? If we really believe that, how would our lives look? Would they look as they do? For some of us, praise God, yes! Because many of us in this room are doing it, right? But there are many in the church, and I'm not thinking specifically of this church, but in the church of Jesus Christ, who struggle with this promise, who struggle to keep the kingdom of God and his righteousness at the very beginning of our thoughts and our affections. If we took him for his word, he will supply for us. Think of Psalm 84, 11. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing. George Mueller, even on the deathbed of his wife, who he loved for, you know, and married to for years, on her deathbed, she's in sickness, she's dying, and he cries out to the Lord. And his cry to the Lord is, will you heal her? Will you heal her? Will you restore her? But then he also, in his prayer, acknowledges that if God doesn't, it's because it's not good for her or it's not good for him. Do we believe that God does not hold back that which is good for those who walk uprightly with him? If we believe it, then we're going to be really concerned about walking uprightly. You know what I'm saying? Or how about Philippians chapter 419? And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in the glory in Christ Jesus. God will supply every need. If we really believe this, think about what our prayer life looks like. We will not hold back by telling God what our needs are, right? We will not hold back in taking one step of, of risk after another for his kingdom. When, when the rest of the world says it doesn't make sense and it doesn't add up for us, it makes complete sense because he said it. And we have experiential understanding that what God says, he does. That God is able. That he's able. So the good news of giving this morning is that God is able and his grace is abundant. He will not hold back from you. If you give your life to the Lord, like George Mueller, if you delight primarily in the Lord and the work he's called you to, he won't hold back. He will take care of you. Folks, the picture of a church that we want to be like is that picture of the Macedonians. And in many ways, I see many of you living that exact same life. That God has, has poured out his grace and his mercy. It doesn't mean that your life has suddenly become a breeze. Right? There's many of us here who have received that grace and have received that mercy. And life is still difficult. Pain and sickness still plague us. But our circumstance, we don't want to give power to our circumstances, right? Because he is the God of all power. You know, in his grace, he allows us in those circumstances to rise above and to be joyful and to be generous. And guess who gets the glory? Jesus. Because guess who's doing the work? It ain't you. Don't be fooled. It is not you. It is not me. It's King Jesus. So the good news of giving, he's able and his grace is abundant. And last, the work that he's called us to is good. 
The work that he's called us to is good. God's grace is poured out on us for a purpose. I don't know if you see that. If you go back to verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. And if I was in my Bible, or I'm in my Bible, if I had a pen in my hand, I would be circling that phrase, so that. So that is a very critical phrase in that verse. He pours out his ability and his power and his grace for a purpose. Don't get it twisted. God has saved you. He's working in you for a reason, and it's because he's going to work through you for his glory. All of this grace that is being abundantly poured out on us is, is, is being poured out onto us for a purpose. And the end of that verse tells us exactly what that purpose is. It is so that we would be able to abound in every good work. For he is able to make his grace abound to you so that having all efficiency at all times and all things, you may abound in every good work. That's what he's calling us to. Every good work. Every good work. And this may seem like a daunting task, right? Every good work? Every good work? How do we discern what every good work is? Well, I would say this is a good starting place. Right? It's a really good thing that God has revealed his will. He has revealed his character. He has revealed himself in this book. So as we discern what is every good work, pick up the only good book. All right? And it's revealed right in here. So as a church, this, this gives us direction and guidance. How do we spend our energy? How do we spend our money, money as we're a church that pours out generously, because we have received graciously by our Lord and Savior? What does it look like to participate in every good work? This Bible is our roadmap for discerning what that is. We give ourselves to this book. We give ourselves to prayer and dependence on him and taking God for his word. And within the authority structure of a church, the elders are men who, who fast and who pray and who open this book and search it for God's guidance and his will in our community as we live this gospel out in our community. There's a good, helpful verse that he follows up with in verse 9. He says, as it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. What Paul is doing is he is quoting Psalm 112. And in Psalm 112, it's very like Psalm 1, where it gives us a picture of what a righteous life looks like. If you, you can keep your thumb there in 2 Corinthians. I'll just highlight a few things from Psalm 112. If you want to meet me in Psalm 112, you can. But basically he says, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments, whose righteousness endures forever. This righteous picture of a righteous man, he is gracious and merciful and righteous. He deals generously and lends. He, he conducts his affairs, his affairs with justice. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. He has distributed freely. So where verse 9 comes in. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. This is the picture of the righteous life, the good works that God is calling us to. Church, and I, I love Psalm 112 because here's what it doesn't do. It doesn't say, all I want you to do is just spend time reading and understanding the commandments. Is it there? It absolutely is. And he, our response is, we delight in the world, but in the word of God. But true delight in the word of God is going to naturally lead to obedience to the word of God. 
Those two things are not options we choose from. Oh, I'm a person who really likes to learn the Bible. Oh, I'm a person who really likes to live. I just like practical stuff. Just tell me what to do. Folks, they, are, they coexist together. One feeds naturally the other. Okay? And a righteous person learns God's word, loves and delights what God has to say. And then lives the life that God has called them to live. Those two things coexist. So as we think about what does it look like in our community, what has been helpful for me is think of two primary things, two kind of different categories. And again, these are not categories that are at odds with each other. Unfortunately, in our culture, oftentimes they are pitted against each other. Oh, we're a church who does this, and we're a church who does this. As we think of what it looks like to put God's glory, the immeasurable riches of Christ on display in our community, there's two primary ways that we do that. The first is through gospel proclamation. Okay? We proclaim the good news that we have heard. And, and how can somebody believe if they don't hear, Paul says in Romans? And how can they hear if they don't believe? Or so how can somebody believe if they don't hear? How can they hear if there's not somebody who goes and tells them about it? If there's not somebody who's preaching the word of God? The work that we do is going to be filled with proclaiming the grace of God. Proclaiming with words the immeasurable riches of Christ. We don't just do good things without pointing to folks to the only good thing that we really ever want and need in our life. We proclaim the message. But there's another portion of that when we think about gospel ministry in our community. is We don't just proclaim the message. We also demonstrate the gospel, gospel proclamation and gospel demonstration, just like George Mueller, how he, he saw there was needs in his community. There were children who didn't have home, who didn't have food, who didn't have a family to care for them, who were dying of sickness in the streets. And he said, this is an opportunity to love my neighbor and to put God's glory on display for the world. So I will demonstrate the grace that I've received in the same way that the loving Father has adopted me, called me into his own. So I will be an heir of his, an heir of Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen, the exact same way that God has loved me, guess what I got to do now? Love my neighbor, right? And so as we think about what does every good work look like here at Parkview East in Iowa City, we do so with those sort of pillars. How can we proclaim the grace that we've received? How can we show the grace that we've received. It's one of the reasons why I love you, why I love this church, because these, this idea of proclaiming the gospel and showing the gospel, they go hand in hand, and they do so in the Bible, okay? So as we think about what every good work is, loving the Lord with all of our heart, Jesus summed it up, and loving our neighbor as ourself. That's what it looks like. It looks a lot like that. For some of us, every good work might be defined a little differently as God has us placed in different jobs, in different schools, in different neighborhoods. So there's going to be obviously some variety here, right? But are we proclaiming, are we putting words on the gospel message, and are we showing the gospel message with our lives? God is a gracious God. When we think about the generosity he, that should naturally flow from our lives, folks, it is good news. If you are a generous person, it's good news primarily because God has poured out his grace upon your life, that you have received much in the forgiveness of your sins and the redemption of your soul. You have been given so much. It's not radical to believe what God says and to give generously. It's the natural response. It's the natural response. So here's what I'm going to do. I'll give you two minutes. In your seat, I want us to sit quietly and just reflect. Two questions I'm going to give you. 
The first, it's very similar to what we did last week. The first is I want you to reflect on the grace that you have received. How has God worked in your life? I want you to just reflect on that for a moment. How has God worked in you? For some of you, maybe he hasn't yet. Maybe this is the first time you've heard about the grace of our Lord Jesus that is offered freely to all of us without any bells or without any sort of hooks or, or, or caveats or anything like that, but it's just freely given to us. Reflect on that. And the second thing, not just how has God worked in you, but I want you to reflect, how does God want to work through you? What are the good works that he has prepared for you beforehand? And for some of us, maybe we've been reluctant to believe and to take God at his word. And maybe this morning is the opportunity we say, you know what, God, I have been holding back. You can look at my schedule for this week, and nowhere have I blocked out any time to, to dig into your word or to share it with somebody around me. Lord, how do you want to work through me this week? Don't think. I mean, it could be great. Some of you, maybe, maybe you need to think about five years from now and what God's going to do with you in retirement. Maybe some of you need to think about just the end of this year and what God's going to do with you in graduation. Maybe some of you. There's a good chance, though, most of us just need to reflect on what God is going to do through you this week with what is in your hands. Not what will be in five years when you get a big salary, okay? Because there will always be something else you'll want and think you need. God wants you to be faithful with what he's placed in your hands, your relationships, your time, your money, your career, your expertise, your gifts, the grace, the varied grace that he's given you. What are you going to do with it this week? Let me pray for us, and then I'll just give you a few moments, and then Craig's going to come up and lead us in the Lord's Supper. Father God, thank you, Lord, just that you are a God who's able. Father, we can speak and we can say and we can testify to that from our experience, from our story, Lord. Um, but I pray that you would even just pour that out in our hearts right now and show us, Lord, what it is that you want to do through us as just individually as a people, but then also corporately as a church. Lord, I pray that you would just speak to our hearts right now. Speak to our hearts, Lord.
All right, church. Well, just real quick, too, I wanted to say, if you, you know, just as you were reflecting, uh, one of the things we really value around here is prayer and something that we want to actively do constantly. And so if you were reflecting and you feel like for whatever reason this morning um, you need prayer, uh, whether it's about something or just, you know, whatever it might be, we want to just make some leaders available up front here. We'd invite you to come up here and they'd love to pray with you and for you. So that'll be after the service. Also, um, if you're new here and you'd like to get connected, at the bottom of your welcome card, there's a connect. Um, so just some information, you could tear that off and you could drop it in the offering uh, box on your way out. Um, and then finally, also at the table, there's a little like four-day study guide on generosity. So if you want something to kind of just got you thinking and you want some more studying and reflecting to do, we'd invite you to pick that up. And that one's on the house. It's on us. All right. So other than that, um, you know, it's the grace of our Lord Jesus and the love of the Father and the fellowship of the Spirit that we go now. Um, I can't wait to see you guys next week. You guys have a good week.